The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. If you want to learn something new, let's say the days of the week in Spanish, you'd probably think it was best to just repeat lunes, martes, miércoles, jueves, viernes, sábado, domingo, over and over a few dozen times in a row. And then when you have repeated it enough times successfully, you may think, well, all right, I've nailed it. Then you go on and you do something else. And after a couple weeks go by, you might try to recall it. And well, you didn't nail it quite so well that time around. There is so much importance and significance in repetition with learning. But did you know there is an evidence-based strategy of repetition that ensures you are really locking in a memory? There are actually some pretty widely studied and effective counterintuitive tools you can learn to up your brain health and give you the best chance at effective critical thinking and increased problem solving, especially when unexpected situations come your way. Hello, life. You can listen into this episode to learn and to put into practice some of these very useful tools. I am so excited to have Dr. Iris Furstenberg, professor at UCLA Anderson School of Management, who specializes in strategies for creative problem solving and innovative thinking on this episode of Looking Up. She helps people take their business ideas from good to great using science-based information on the brain. We certainly don't know everything about the brain, and we have a long way to go. But Dr. Furstenberg helps people understand what we do know about the brain and how we can apply that knowledge into our daily lives to increase optimal living and well-being. I don't know about you, but having more of a handle on my own brain sounds pretty good to me. On today's episode of Looking Up, we are talking all about things like using curiosity, repetition, desirable difficulties, visualization, effective practice, and intentional challenge as ways to make our brain work better for us. Dr. Furstenberg also shares with us the groundbreaking and landmark study she was involved in with Coach Wood and himself, illustrating just how effective visualization can be for athletes and for all of us. And for those of you who have been following me along or have heard me speak anywhere, any of my work, you know how interested I am in the techniques of visualization. So you can imagine how excited I am to share this specific episode with you. We are going to jump right into the looking in portion is what I like to call it of this podcast, where I get to ask you some rapid fire style questions to get to know you a little more intimately. So Dr. Furstenberg, Have you read a book in your life that has actually changed the way in which you live your life? And if so, please share. Yes. The best book I think I've ever read, still tops my top five list, is called Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. It was written in the 1950s, hence the word man, right? (laughs) But it's profound. And it is just a 90-page treatise on how important it is for us to have purpose in our lives and how to find purpose. That's incredible. And so such a nice uh, sort of segue in just a little bit to all the things we're going to talk about. So I'm super excited about that. Okay. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. I think because I do so much public speaking, people think I'm an extrovert. I'm always piping up and I get very excited about what I'm sharing. 
but I'm actually more of what was defined introvert. You know, I, I gain energy from quiet time, from reflection. So I think people maybe miss this mark on that. <laughs> yes, I can relate to that a lot. <laughs> okay, three words to describe yourself as a teenager in the high school years. I was very academic. I was very conscientious. But thanks to incredible parents, I was also very optimistic that I could do anything I wanted with my life if I set my mind to it and put the work in. You know we love that on this show, <laughs> to have that as one of the words. Okay, when is the last time that you cried? Last week. This is going to stay with me for a really long time. If you haven't seen this, you've got to Google it. There was a little 13-year-old boy who got on national television and talked about how Joe Biden helped him overcome his stuttering. Wow. He was talking at the DNC, the Democratic National Convention, and you knew he was going to stutter, and he did. And when he got stuck on that word, my heart stopped. But this little boy persevered. He recovered with grace, with poise. He smiled through it. And I thought, wow, what courage. It, it was one of the most emotional things I've ever seen in my life. Aww. I'm tearing up thinking about what this boy did. Sounds incredible. Last thing, last question in this rapid fire is three things that have brought you joy today. You know, since this pandemic where I've been in this room for more hours than I can imagine, I've noticed it's a lot of the little things. It's so many little things bring joy that used to be absentmindedly done or you're not, you weren't even paying attention. And so, you know, when I drink my favorite cup of coffee and I only drink it once a day, I'm paying attention to it and I'm savoring those sips rather than like I said, drinking without awareness. This morning, I looked at a picture that my, I have a five-year-old granddaughter and she drew a picture of a rainbow. And, uh, you know, grandparents, so we stick the, <laughs> we stick the yeah. up and then you don't even see it anymore. But I took time to actually look at this drawing and she had asked, that, you know, she's only five, so she had asked that we write, the rainbow is in the house to make me happy. Aww. How profound, you know, she's drawing a rainbow and bringing it into the house. Yes. For the rainbow to appear. That's profound. And so all, noticing all the things around me that all those little things really do add up to joy and not wait yes. for a big thing that is going to be that thing of joy. Right. That's so true that we so often are like, if this changes, we'll be happy. Or if I get this, we'll be happy. But so many of us, I think, while we are, for lack of a better term, you know, at home right now and spending way more time at home, I think we are noticing these things that do bring us joy or at least around us that maybe have always been there that we haven't actually taken the time to know or at least knowing that we're more intentional about what we do want to put around ourselves that we're looking at all the time and, and trying to figure out like what feeling is it bringing me and hopefully it is joy and, and adding some more of those things in to our just daily life is so important. So all good points to jump right in. I'm so excited to talk to you on so many different levels. And I'm so excited that you are a professor at UCLA, which I know I've shared with you is my alma mater. And you also teach classes at Anderson, right? And my husband, that's his alma mater is Anderson. And so we're a big Bruin family. So we're excited to have you. <laughs> you know, I'm actually a triple Bruin. All ed my entire education, all my degrees are from UCLA. That's amazing. That is amazing. I also did my fellowship there too. So 
I might be one of those too. <laughs> Everything's from UCLA for me. So I, as you know, I study optimism and what I did my entire dissertation on was optimism and to break it down in a really general way, but how visualization and the process of sensory-based visual imagery can really help rewire our brain and actually increase optimism. And I know you talk about this too, and I've heard you say that visualization can help us rewire our brain and it's just as good as practicing in real time. And I would love for you to talk about that because that is what I talk about and I want to hear it from you. Oh, my pleasure. Yes. I think what you're talking about when you when you point out that we can rewire our brain through visualization, that comes under the bigger umbrella of developing cognitive fitness. And there are many things that we can do with our minds to rewire our brains. And a healthy brain allows us to learn and remember better. It allows us to become adaptive problem solvers. So cognitive fitness just means that we are really effective thinkers. And the question is how we can develop this kind of fitness. What are some things that we can do to be more cognitively fit? And before we get to tactics like visualization, we first have to take it in a one step back and think about, well, it's the brain that we're trying to improve. It's the health of the brain that's going to be critical to our ability to be better thinkers. And so right now, in the situation people are experiencing, there is one thing going on in our lives that is very harmful to the brain, and that's chronic stress. Mm-hmm. When we're under situations of chronic fear or anxiety, that leads to the stress response in the body. And there's a hormone that gets released during stress, and that's cortisol, which is it's a good hormone. It's wonderful. It helps us respond to unfolding threats. But if our brain is relentlessly being attacked by cortisol because of the chronic stress, that relentless kind of exposure is toxic. It's Mm -hmm. toxic to the brain. What does it do? It shrinks. It shrinks the part of the brain, the hippocampus, that's responsible for memory. It's involved. Everything we experience and want to understand and remember We want to be able to make better decisions, counts on the hippocampus to function correctly. And so when you're exposed to prolonged stress and the hippocampus is actually being damaged, uh, you're going to find yourself having difficulty even making simple decisions, having difficulty remembering even where you put the keys or what was Mm -hmm. the word for that thing, let alone thinking about complex issues. Right. So we've got to be thinking, what can we be doing daily to manage stress? And what can you be doing to calm yourself, to bring joy into your life, as you just talked about a moment ago? And we've all heard a lot of advice, right? We've heard about physical activity and mindfulness. I want to point out something that may be not on your radar. Play. Mm -hmm. Adults don't play enough just to have fun. Kids do. Kids are playing all the time, right? And so if you're an adult, here's a really effective strategy. Think back when you were a kid. What kind of play did you enjoy? Were you a storyteller and you liked fantasy worlds? Did you like to build and create things like Legos and Tinker Toys? Maybe competitive sports games. That's another type of play. Maybe you were a collector. Did you collect baseball cards, stamps, bugs? You know, what did you collect? What was the play that you enjoyed? 
And if you can tap back into that and think, how can I bring that level of play back into my life today? That can be extremely effective in helping to calm us down. So I'll just give you my example. I love to play Scrabble. That was Mm -hmm. my favorite game to play. Anybody who I could capture to play Scrabble (laughs) as a kid was my hostage. And today, every morning, I do a crossword puzzle. It's kind of tied and related. And every breakfast, I do a crossword puzzle. And to me, that is a very energizing and calming way to start the day. That's so true. It's so interesting. Just yesterday, I came across a picture of every summer, my cousins who lived on the East Coast would come every summer without fail with my aunt. And my uncle would sort of come back and forth. He could work that way over the summer. And they would come and spend three months. And we would all live in the same house. It was my, I call him my brother. He's exactly my age. We're a month apart. And my, I call her my little sister. She's four years younger than me. And we would all be together for the summer. And we would just play. And I saw a picture. And it's, it's silly, but it was at a Taco Bell. Now it looks like a vintage Taco Bell. But this was in the late 80s. And it brought me back. And I had this very nostalgic moment where I thought about exploring and how we used to think we were archaeologists and we would break rocks in half and see what was inside. And we'd play with pogs and we'd play with pogo sticks and skippets and these different games and toys that were around at that time. And we'd make up our own games, like imaginary friends and make up our own games and, you know, whatever it was and swim for hours. And all of this came back to me and it started uh, getting me thinking about a couple things. And I actually wrote a post about it yesterday. But, you know, so much of optimism and what I study is obviously directed to the future. But so much research is actually out there and how helpful and what a tool positive nostalgia can be. And what it did, it's kind of similar. It made me think about those type of play activities that, you know, when you hear adults often say like, oh, it was so nice to be a kid when we didn't worry about X, Y, and Z. And of course we know you know, as kids, we did worry about some things. And even as teenagers, things may look like not that big of a deal now, but we had legitimate concerns and worries and anxieties and stresses. But, you know, just that idea of free play and having a child of my own now, I realize I play so much more. And that shouldn't actually be the permission I need to play as a 37-year-old woman. We should play. Of course, it's something that I think is so big in mental fitness, but I do play so much more with my kid. And it's so interesting. Like, you you know, some of us might think like, hey, if I was doing some of those types of play that I'm doing with my kid right now, would it be funny or weird if I did it alone? And I've caught myself doing that. And I'm like, but it feels good. So I'm just going to keep doing it. Exactly. So we don't need to wait until we have a three-year-old. Yes. We'd be doing in our own lives to bring more of that kind of playful, even if it's in the attitude, how we... You know, you should take your work seriously, but you don't have to take yourself seriously. How can you be mm-hmm. playful in everything you do? Yes, I love that. That's so interesting and so important for right now as well. And I think it's important to say that if you do add more play in your life, it doesn't mean you're discounting the seriousness of and the gravity of other situations that are happening. And I think that's something I always like to preface and talk about is this idea of duality. And you can be worried and be scared and even experience stress or, you know, take everything that's happening super seriously and at the same time experience joy. And, and we should because we're, we're built to do both. It may sound counterintuitive, but you're going to be able to handle the stresses and the problems mm. better if you have incorporated the joy and the attitude 
that allows you to think more clearly about those problems. So true. What are some other everyday real life tips that we can do that fall under that umbrella of keeping our brain healthy and really working out and, and, and experiencing or going through cognitive fitness? So taking care of brain health is very much uh, related to taking care of the health of the rest of the body. You know, physical exercise, good nutrition, sleeping enough. Boy, does the brain need sleep. Yes. In fact, in 2013, the CDC declared our lack of sleep actually is a national epidemic, that we don't sleep enough. Oh, I believe it. The brain needs an average of seven and a half hours of sleep a night. And most of us are not getting that. Not good sleep. It's interrupted sleep. We don't get enough sleep. Because key things are happening in the brain when we're asleep. The brain does not turn off. Many critical functions are happening, um, including, we'll talk about memory in a moment, the consolidation of memories. You're having lots of experiences during the day, but it's during sleep that those, those memories, what we say, we, they consolidate. Those connections that are formed in the brain get stronger. And those new experiences get connected to old memories. So you wake up in the morning thinking, wait a minute, now I see the connection between what I heard yesterday and that thing from three months ago. Wow, I have a great idea. If you're not getting enough sleep, you are shortchanging yourself. You're not going right. to have as good a memory because the memories don't consolidate and you're not going to be a very effective thinker. We know what happens when we don't, when we really have prolonged periods of lack of sleep. We're irritable, we're you know, you can barely remember your name. Right. And problem solving skills completely decrease, you know, things that when you do have enough sleep in an instant, you kind of have an idea of how to work through a problem, but without sleep, it literally feels impossible. Yeah. Yeah. So sleep is central. It's not a waste of time. It's a great tool for brain health. So that said, given that you have tools to create a healthy brain, uh, we want now to enhance the mind within that brain, right? We want to be able to learn and remember information. Most people, when they complain about memory, they're complaining about not being able to remember stuff that happened that they just heard, or it's that kind of long-term lack of access to information. So my PhD at UCLA is in human memory. And so I have a lot to say about that. Yes. I've also been studying problem solving in the uh, course of my career. So I think we'll focus on those two things as that would be great. part of the cognitive fitness. So the how to improve your memory and how to become a more adaptive problem solver. Yes, please. All right. So here are a couple of things about memory that everybody knows. Number one, memory fades over time, right? I think we've all figured that out. That as you know, you learn, you hear something today, it's still pretty accessible. But as time goes on, it gets less and less accessible right? So you're better off if you repeat things. Repetition helps memory, right? However, I want to offer you some very counterintuitive ways to learn and remember better. And one of them has to do with repetition. We all believe repetition helps memory, but it turns out that how we repeat is going to have a profound influence on whether later on you're actually going to have retrievability. You're going to be able to access mm -hmm. The information. So there is something called deliberate practice. And deliberate practice includes a very specific type of repetition. And this kind of repetition is going to include something we're going to call desirable difficulties. That's an oxymoron. Why mm -hmm. desirable? Two of my colleagues, 
Robert and Elizabeth Bjork at UCLA, they are internationally renowned memory experts, coined this term, and their groundbreaking research on this effect is fascinating. So let me share with you what is really this kind of deliberate practice that includes desirable difficulties. Let's start with the kind of repetition most people think works. Let's say you want to learn how to say the days of the week in Spanish. Okay, so you look at the list, you get the list of the seven words, and you just repeat them to yourselves. Lunes, Lunes, martes, miércoles, jueves, viernes. Sábado, domingo. Exactly. Now, just kept repeating those to yourselves four or five times. You put the paper down. You're just rolling them off your tongue. You've nailed it, right? And so by the ninth repetition that's gotten boom, 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 one repetition after the other, you're very successful. You can retrieve them easily. And that fools us into thinking, I got this. Mm -hmm. When in fact, if you try to retrieve those days of the week a month from now, you're likely not going to remember any of them. Can I ask you a quick question? Is this kind of related, and, and maybe I'm jumping the gun, but is this related to our brains remember more when it's challenged? Like when we have to work through a problem rather than just, of course, memorizing something. But if something happened or there was a challenge and we had to work through the issue and that's sort of, that kind of is what I'm thinking the desirable, yes, difficulty is. uh, Okay. That's exactly it. You want to create a practice where you are going to design challenges into the learning process. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, what's known as a much better way to just a simple thing of repeating information is to space the repetitions. Yeah, say the names of the, you know, the days of the week two, three times, then put it aside. Come Mm. back to it half an hour later and see if you can repeat them again. Ooh, maybe a lost one. Okay, ooh, what was it? Look it up. Do it again. Put it aside for a couple of hours. Put it, then put it aside for a couple of days. And you're going to repeat the information, let's say seven or eight times, but not in one masked block. Right. And here's, I want to share with you why you want to do it. Every time you repeat information, you want to increase what we call the signal strength of the connection that was formed in the brain, right? Something physical is formed in the brain and memory is, has a signal strength that will fade over time. That's when information becomes less accessible. The signal becomes very weak. Your best opportunity to repeat the information is just when that signal has become so weak, it's about to disappear and you give it that boost with that repetition. Mm. If you're repeating it when it's still very, very highly accessible, that repetition does very little for you. That's why rote repetition mm. isn't doing much to boost. But when you challenge yourself, it's about to become inaccessible and you give it the boost, voila, now you are really setting that memory in, in such a way that it'll be much more easily accessible into the future. Does research say, is there like an actual studied amount of time in which the memory starts to kind of lose its potency right there in that special target moment where you want to give the boost? Wouldn't that be awesome? Yes, it would. (laughs) We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Where the art kind of uh, meets science. You know, it depends on how difficult the material is for you to begin with. So, What we do know is that for material that's very difficult for you, you'd want the spacing to be equal intervals and not too much in the beginning, you know, gradually Mm -hmm. increase. If it's relatively simple kinds of uh, information for you, maybe start and then quickly increase the intervals. 
I'll give you an example. I took a CPR class. And for me, that's like learning a foreign language of, you know, like Chinese where I don't even recognize the letters. I didn't, yes. you know, so many steps, so many, and I was really, how will I ever remember to do this in some future point if I ever, right? right? So on the drive home from the CPR class, this was way before pandemic times, I could have gone through all the steps of CPR in my head on the drive home 10 times, gotten home, felt I got it. But that would have been useless. So what I did is I went over all the steps driving home. Then I just put it aside, came home, got dinner ready, whatnot. Right after dinner, now an hour had elapsed. Okay, what were those steps of CPR? Oh, wait a minute, what was that one? Work hard, try to remember it yourself before you look it up because that actually activates the memory. Mm. Okay, now I'm good. I got them now. Then I waited until the next morning and I did it again. And that was already a Saturday. So then I waited till after the weekend. Monday, I did it again. And then I waited until Thursday. And then I waited for another week. So I kept increasing the spacing between my repetitions. And it is really astonishing how much I then would would remember even three months later. Okay. You just said something that brought up a really, I feel like, important question. And I want to get your read on it. What is happening to our memory right now when we kind of briefly forget something that we had just learned and then we naturally just Google it? And so our brain is not necessarily having to go through the steps to work through like that part where you were like talking to your brain and saying, okay, work really hard, remember it. And so many times like we're actually on auto where we just go like, oh, who cares? Like I'll just Google it and I'll just look it up. And what is happening to our brains with that and our memory. Well, it's actually, it's very interesting because there's a lot of research now going on and you know, how are we interacting and engaging with information devices? And that is an interesting question, but I have to say that this question did not start with the internet. I think it was- Right, calculators. Oh my gosh. Yes. Know, when the pencil was invented. Pencils, yes. Down. Oh, that's the end of human memory as we know it. And so it's not about, you know, memorizing facts that you can look up. You know, mm-hmm. honestly, right. really want to spend time memorizing facts I can look up. Right. Learn complex information. I want to learn and remember and be able to apply complex concepts. That's something Google can't help you with. That's got to be. Yes. That reminds me so much of the school system. And I feel like when I was growing up, and I'm sure it's similar now, but there's so many different schools of thoughts. But when I was growing up, I, you know, went to a really good public school. I was in a district that it's, you know, one of the best public school districts in all of the nation. But the type of learning was all memorization and it wasn't necessarily problem solving. And the very few things like, you know, of course, this is a little later, but not really. I've been out of grad school for so long now, but I remember so much more, maybe maybe because of a few things. Like I was personally very interested in the topic. It's why I would go into years and years and years of extra schooling to do it. And But also it was like more based on problem solving and utilizing and analyzing and using analytics and my brain to actually think of working through problems. Whereas everything I learned that was memorization based and repetitive and just that like, you got to know this for the social studies test or, you know, the math test and memorizing formulas and that type of stuff. I don't remember any of it, like zero. And I didn't remember any of it a couple of years later where I started thinking like, what is the point of all this? Like I, 
you know, I was in school before you brought laptops. And so you were highlighting things with those really crazy color, yellow and orange. And my whole book would be highlighted. Like there were not like important topics, like the entire page would be bright orange, but that was the way it went into my brain. Like if I went over it with my hand, with the highlighter, it went into my brain. Well, there are things we need to memorize, right? You don't want to have to recalculate what is two times three every time you need to know the answer, right? Right. Basic foundation of information is important. But yes, I agree with you. It's a lot easier in a school to test people on their memorization rather than on their problem-solving skills. So while you and I are not going to revolutionize the school system in the next year, let me share with you a strategy I used with my daughters that, again, it was kind of like out of necessity. Like They also went to remarkable schools and the teachers loving and caring. I'm not putting them down in any way. But at dinner, we would have a question at the dinner table. And the question was to all the girls, what questions did you have today that did not get answered? What Mm. questions did you have today? And there was no option to say, I didn't have any question. (laughs) (laughs) So they had to actually, even if they didn't have one readily available, they had to utilize their mind to think about a question that they may not know the answer to. Yeah. And, but what happened was they knew that was coming. So throughout the day, you're kind of looking to think about what am I curious about? What do I want to ask a question about? And in the beginning, it was a bit difficult to prompt them. You know, the young one who was in kindergarten, when we started this, she looked at us like we were speaking another language. And so I kind of tried to guide her. I said, you know, when you play on the playground and they have that, I don't know, this kind of rubberized material under the swing set, it sparkles. She was, yeah, because she loved jewelry. I said, yeah. Do you ever wonder why? Do you wonder, why? Do you wonder what makes it sparkle? Oh, I want to know what makes it sparkle. So Now, so they began to realize that you really are going to have to be curious, right? Curious about the world in order to have good questions to ask at dinner. And that's, if you can instill curiosity in your children, you have given them a gift for life. And I don't know that the schools do a good enough job of making kids curious, but you can bring that into the home. Just make them, just make them curious so that they're relentlessly asking questions for the rest of their lives. That's so interesting. And I completely agree with that. My child is a very curious child. And he's one of those children that since nine months has been asking why, does why about everything about 95 times a day. And so it is pretty cool and amazing, but it also makes, sometimes it's annoying, of course, but it makes you realize how little you actually know. And also that's actually a really good question. And then you try to figure out and problem solve it together. And oftentimes with him, a follow-up to his why is we'll ask him like, what do you think? And we'll sort of all talk about it in a discussion rather than us just giving him the answer. And it's a really great... Teaching him how to problem solve. You're teaching yes. him to find the answer. And that's the goal. It wasn't a dinner, oh, you have that question, I know everything, I'm the author right. parent. It was, oh gosh, how are we going to find the answer to that question? It's humbling. I don't know either. Let's figure out how to get the answer to that question. I love that. Curiosity is such a big... Even in optimism, I always say that the two things that I can't really define optimism with without saying our resiliency and curiosity. So it's like, what am I going to learn from this? 
and how will I grow from this? And I might not know how I'm going to get through it, but I know I will. And how interesting about, you know, about how it'll unfold. So this idea of curiosity, even in, in a time of, of despair is so, so powerful. And it starts so young. You're so right. So I want to share with you, aside from spacing of repetitions, you know, to improve your ability to remember things, I think one of probably the most counterintuitive way to learn better is, again, it's adding a desirable difficulty by interleaving, when you're spacing your repetitions, you want to interleave related skills. So for example, if you were going to learn, let's go back to learning a foreign language, let's go back to learning Spanish. And you're learning the past, the present, and the future tenses. Okay? Now you want to practice using past, present, and future. I'm going to give you 45 minutes to practice. What most people will do is they'll, they'll block their time. They'll say, let's spend 15 minutes on the past tense. Then we'll move to 15 minutes on the present. And we'll move our last 15 minutes to the future tense. Don't do that. Don't do that. Instead of that, interleave the tenses across the 45 minutes randomly. Yes, it's much harder to do that. Every time you come to a tense, you have to reload it. Wait, what, what is that? Oh, that's the present tense now. You have to reload it. But that extra level of complexity is actually what's going to help you learn better. And I think the most astonishing research study I've ever seen on this idea was a beanbag experiment. So let me tell you about the beanbag experiment. It was done with children. And what they did is kids were going to practice throwing a beanbag at a target for a set distance, right? The beanbag was four feet away. You had to get the beanbag into a hole that was four feet away. So now half the kids were standing at a line that was four feet away and got a lot of practice throwing it into the, into the hole. Another half of the kids practiced throwing it three feet away and a hole that was five feet away. And that was randomized. You didn't know if you were going to have to now throw it three feet away or five feet away, but they never got a chance to throw it at the four feet, okay? So we've got two groups, right? One is at a single fixed distance, the four feet. The other group randomized within their trials, three feet versus five feet. After a delay, all the kids were tested at four feet. Now, you would assume that the kids who practiced four feet would do best. No. The effect of the varied practice even when the tested distance wasn't included, outweighed the benefit of the practice at the tested distance. I mean, just think what that means. What these kids had to do at the three and five feet is constantly recalibrate themselves, constantly had to recalibrate what should I be doing. Whereas with the four feet, you know, four and four and four and four, it just became rote. It just became on autopilot. All those additional practices trials really weren't adding very much. And so if you think about what this means in terms of our ability to act, really adapt to unknown unfolding futures, the more variety of experiences you have, the better positioned you are to respond effectively. I mean, that's yes. you know that the four feet was coming up and yet they excelled at it, right? Yes. More to draw on when something entirely new happens. That is so interesting. And I actually read that study. And also one of my guests on the podcast, do you know, Dr. Castell, Alan yes, Castell? Yes. He, yes, he came on a little bit ago and he was 
also talking about this and I had read the study and it's fascinating and makes so much sense. But you're right. So many of these things are counterintuitive and which is why I love bringing in the science-based, you know, research in practical ways on a medium like a podcast like this, because people wouldn't know this. And these are things that you actually can do in your everyday life to make your brain work for you. Challenge yourself and expose yourself to a variety of experiences. When we learn information, it's very context dependent. And so it's where we were, what what were we feeling? All of that gets encoded with the memory itself. I think one of the most exciting experiences I ever had, and that you alluded to earlier, was as an undergrad in the psychology department at UCLA, Coach Wooden was our coach at UCLA. And he agreed to do a study with some folks in the psychology department that I was a you know, little research assistant on, but what an experience. So here's what the study looked at. We took a group of students who had never played basketball, and Coach Wooden gave the students a 30-minute session on how to stand at the three-throw line and shoot a basket. You know, what would it take to be good at that? Now, following that 30-minute lesson, we divided the students randomly into two groups. Half of them, one group, was going to get physical practice on the basketball court for 20 minutes, three times a week, for X number of weeks. I think it was like maybe four weeks. The other half would never come back to the basketball court. What they would get instead was a visualization experience. And they were taken through a very, very structured mental exercise of imagining themselves standing at the free throw line. What does the ball feel like? Where would your feet be? How heavy is all of that? And imagine how you would throw the ball. So they were going through that for 20 minutes, three times a week. At the end of the period, all the students are brought back to the court to actually, let's see, how good you've become at making baskets. And it turned out that everybody improved and everybody improved equally. Wow. No difference between the actual practice and the visualization practice. It was as effective. And what I've heard since then from, you know, not just the good athletes, the exceptional athletes, are that they engage in both types of practice. Yes. Athletes, not only do they practice physically, but later they're mentally going through all the moves. And the mental practice is not, let's not be fooled, the mental practice is not, oh, I'm so good, I'm so great, I can Right. The mental practice is, why didn't I make that? What was, where was my shoulder? Where, where should my shoulder be? I mean, down to the minute corrections, visualizing what they could or should be doing differently in the next game. And that is a big differentiator between the good and the great. Yes. It's so interesting because the wooden sort of research with that is something that I actually used in my dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> And you were part of it, which is so crazy and so cool and such a full circle moment for me right now that I have chills. Also, what I think is so interesting in all my study and and on visualization is I think oftentimes people forget in those type of environments that these people are not just visualizing everything going perfectly. They're also visualizing problem solving when things don't go well. And they visualize those scenarios too. And, you know, Michael Phelps working with his coach in the Olympics and, and he couldn't see in his goggles, you know, and, and, and he still won. And it's because he actually had visualized that scenario before and he knew what to do to swim blind. That's not something he could have practiced, you know, necessarily 
but he spent a lot of time visualizing in his mental practice, all the different scenarios of yes, it going well and it going the way he wanted, but also, you know, if X, Y, and Z happens, I'm going to visualize that too. And how I'm going to carry through that. Really? And this goes back to our three feet and five feet example. When Michael Phelps goes through all the possible ways things could go wrong and how I will respond to that. The benefit of that is that not only will it help him respond when that goes wrong, but when something entirely new that he did not imagine would happen, he has more to draw on to solve that problem as well. So interesting. It's fascinating. And it, you know, it brings me back to thinking about Darwin's statement that it's not the strongest of the species that survives, not the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change, the, the people who can adapt to whatever unfolds. Yes. And so again, how do we become more adaptive problem solvers? I'm so glad you're going to talk about this because this is, uh, you know, your work with adaptive planning. I want to hear about this. Yeah. So this idea that, you know, to become a more adaptive problem solver, yes, having this variety of experiences really gives you the foundation, the tools to become more adaptive. But what's the biggest obstacle in becoming adaptive is fear. Mm-hmm. And so what are people afraid of? Are failure. You, exactly. Are you afraid of success? Are you afraid of being too brilliant? No, people are afraid of failure. And the question then becomes, what can you do with your attitude? How do you shift an attitude so that failure is part of the journey and you don't look at it as the brick wall, but rather as just one more step as information? And I, I want to share with you, it's a story that changed my perspective on failure. Because if you'd ask me for a fourth word about my teenage years and not just the three words, I would have had to say perfectionist. Mm-hmm. If I got a 98 on an exam, all I could focus on was the two points I missed, right? And so this need to be perfect and to get it all right, you know, it make, you make, makes you feel like you are going to be motivated to achieve, but it's really difficult to live that way. Mm-hmm. And I heard a speech you might have heard of this woman. Her name is Bonnie St. John. Have you ever heard about Bonnie? No. Bonnie is... Her down. Oh, yes. So let me tell you a little bit about Bonnie. Bonnie is an Olympic athlete. She, in 1984, was represented the United States in the Paralympics. Mm. Her sport is downhill ski racing. Now, wow. So let me tell you a little bit about Bonnie. When she was five years old, she had to have her leg amputated. It was a birth defect that she was born with that could not be corrected. When she was, so now she's a child with a prosthetic leg. She's six years old. She's watching the Winter Olympics and she falls in love with skiing. And she tells her mom, I have to learn how to ski. Well, not only does she only have one leg and that's going to be a problem. She was growing up in San Diego. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's not like we got snow out the door. where we could Right. Ski. And on top of that, Bonnie is the daughter of a single mom who is struggling to raise her children and there's really no discretionary money for, you know, winter camps in, in, in Maine. But Bonnie learns how to ski. That's a story in and of itself. The story I want to share with you today is that she got so good, she qualified to represent the U.S. in the 1984 Winter Olympics. And she's at the top of the mountain with 12 competitors, right? She has been working for this moment her entire life, but so have all of them. After the first run down the side, now for this, this particular sport, you go down two different sides of the mountain and the fastest combined time gets the gold medal. So after the first run on side A of the mountain, our Bonnie is in first place. Okay, you can just, she said, I can feel the medal already hanging on my knee. 
And because she's in first place, on the next run, other side of the mountain, she gets to go last. Okay, why is it good to go last? You can learn from everybody else's mistakes, right? Let them screw up and all. And so she's at the top of the mountain with an earpiece, and her coach is telling her what's happening. And what's happening is that everybody is falling. And they're falling in the same two spots. There's some very slick ice, and then there's a sharp curve. And the coach problem solves with her, figuring out how to manage those two problems, you know, and solve that. So now it's her turn. Everyone has fallen. It's now her turn. She comes down. She knows where the ice is, and she had a solution for that. She was still up. Then she got to the curve. She was still up. Bonnie was now 200 yards from the finish line. And guess what happened? Oh, gosh. She crashed where no one else had fallen. And she said, the anguish of that moment cannot be put into words. Mm -hmm. But something in all of this Olympic training forces these Paralympians to get up and power through the finish line no matter what. Mm -hmm. So somehow she found it in herself to do that. And Bonnie ended up with the bronze medal, not the gold. And she says, what did I learn that day? I learned it's not if you're going to fall. Everybody falls. Right. Winners get back up. Gold medal winners just get up a little faster. Mm. And to me, that was idle. Yes. That idea that you're not finished if you fall. You're only finished if you quit. Right. Get back up. What's it going to take to get back up? How do you develop that mental and emotional resilience? Yes. To get back up. And when I saw that young boy, Raiden Harrington, 13 years old, get up on national television. I thought of Bonnie. Here's this boy who knows he's going to stutter. He's right. not able to give this entire presentation without stuttering. And he's going to push through it. And, and he's going to finish. He's going to finish. He knows at 13 what it took me many, many, many more <laughs> years to learn. But so for all of us, if you, um, you know, Marion Blakey, she was the first female head of the FAA. She said something I think really profound. You can't leave a lasting footprint if you're always walking on tiptoe. Mm, yes. What's it going to take for you to have that poise and that grace of resilience? That's so true. Um, thank you so much for coming on. The way that we end looking up is I ask you one more question and then you have a little homework. <laughs> Which I know as a professor and all of your classes right now, I know are on Zoom, but you are used to giving students homework. So you're getting some homework today. <laughs> but um, my last question for you is, Dr. Furstenberg, what is looking up for you? What are you working on right now? I know you're in the middle of teaching a lot of classes and all online, but what are you hopeful about? You know, I am so excited about this distance learning that everybody is just, you know, pulling their hair out over. I'm looking at it as an opportunity. I'm looking at it as an opportunity to really bring something to the classes that I'm about to start teaching with the MBA students so that it feels like a solid choice rather than some forced march that we've been dictated that we've got to go on. And so I've actually been spending the last couple of weeks completely revising my class. Mm. And I, I don't think I would have done that. You know, why would I have done that if I could just keep repeating what I've been doing for the last 10 years? Right. Huge opportunity. I'm looking at not as a, a punishment, but rather really as something to, that I'm learning a lot from. 
That's so cool. That's awesome. The last thing that we do is we pick a card from my deck of cards that I created called the Things Are Lucking Up Optimism Deck of Cards. And each card has a holistic or science-based prompt or suggestion that actually increases resiliency and growth mindset and joy. So all the things we've been talking about. So I'm going to pick a random card for you. Okay. This one's yours. Rainbow. Yes. It's a rainbow. Just like. Can I show you? I've got to show you. Yes. Show me the rainbow that your granddaughter made. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. I mean, she's five, right? But there is. Oh, that's so good. That's awesome. I love that this is your card. Okay. Cultivate a sense of humor. The ability to laugh at yourself or something you found funny today. If you aren't already laughing out loud, try it. So your homework for today is to find something that makes you laugh today. I'm sure you've already laughed a bunch. So I'm excited to hear what that is. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, Thank you so much. Find a good joke. <laughs> yes, go find a good joke. Thank you so much for coming on. You were so inspirational. And I love how... We have so many practical tools and tips now that we can start today, right now. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.